Good morning. How are you guys? Good. If you're new to Table Community, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray, and we'll just dive right into the Gospel of John. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment, for another opportunity to gather together with other followers of your son Jesus as we sing and study your word and take communion together. God, we partake in these sacred acts, as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do these things because we believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every passage we look at. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, I got a job working at a golf course. And I continued to work at this golf course all the way through high school and all the way through college. When I was in college, I would go back to my hometown and work at this golf course on weekends and on summer breaks. And I worked there right up until I moved to Portland in 2008. And it was by far one of the best, most fun jobs I've ever had. Besides this one, of course. Um, uh, on one summer break, I went home to work at the golf course, and on my first day back at the golf course, I met a new coworker, someone who had gotten hired while I was away, and we were working together a lot that summer. Her name was Honey, just like that uh, Jessica Alba movie. Anyone? Just me? Nope? Okay. All right. Uh, Honey, <laughs> that bomb, quickly became uh, one of my absolute favorite people in the world. She's honestly one of my best friends. She ended up being in our wedding. In real life, we were and still are very good friends, but on paper, we were like the oddest friend couple ever. Like on paper, no one really understood how we could possibly be friends. Here's what I mean. When we met, I was this 19-year-old good Christian boy from this southern conservative traditional family. I had barely traveled outside of the small town that I grew up in. Additionally, when we met, I was attending a hyper-conservative Southern Baptist college with lots of rules. We used to joke that um, one of the rules on campus was you were not allowed to have premarital sex. And the joke was that they wouldn't allow you to have premarital sex because they were afraid it would lead to dancing. That was their, their concern. It was that type of school, okay, like just hyper-conservative. So, so that's what I was bringing to this relationship, okay? Now, honey... Honey was a bit older than me. She had experienced more life. She was not a Jesus follower, and for much of her life, she had caddied on the LPGA tour. So she had just traveled around the world, and she had all these fascinating stories, and she had lived in all these cool places. She had also just come out of a long-term relationship with her girlfriend. And so we talked a lot that summer about the pain of a breakup, and we talked about what it was like for her to grow up as a gay woman in a small southern town. And against all odds, we became fast friends. One of the things we did that summer was a book swap. So we made this agreement that I could choose any book I wanted her to read, and she had to read it, and she could choose any book she wanted me to read, and I had to read it. And we'd go read these books, and then when we'd work together, we would discuss the book. So being the good Christian boy that I was, I chose I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I, 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 I mean, I did read it, but I was not, uh, whatever. Okay. Um, too soon? Was that? Okay. Um, I can't remember what I picked, Mere Christianity or something like that. But she chose this book for me, we'll put it on the screen. It's a book called Socrates Cafe. And the basic premise of the book is exploring the Socratic method of asking questions. And so the author of this book 
basically just traveled around the country sitting in coffee shops and asking intentional questions of people. But here was my big takeaway of the book. There is something powerful about asking open-ended, intentional, well-crafted, and well-timed questions. There's something powerful about asking open-ended, intentional, well-crafted, and well-timed questions. Del Carnegie, in his classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, talks about the importance of asking questions. He says, if you ask good questions, it will make people feel heard and make people feel seen and loved. There's something powerful about asking what Chris Voss, in his book, Never Split the Difference, calls well-calibrated questions. Well-calibrated questions. In the text we're going to look at today, John records the first spoken words of Jesus in his gospel account. So this is the first time we see Jesus speaking in the gospel of John. And the first words that John records, Jesus stated, it's not a statement about who he is. It's not a statement about why he has come. Rather, it is a well-crafted, intentional, and well-placed question to two men who want to follow him. And I believe that it is a question that still has massive implications for you and for me. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 35. If you didn't bring a Bible, all of these words will be on the screen. We are going to cover five verses this morning. Uh, I won't mention their names because I didn't ask permission to say this, but there is a couple in our church that are attempting to memorize the gospel of John as we preach through it. And so they have requested that I preach no more than five verses at a time, uh, (laughs) lest they have a hard time keeping up. So five verses today, John 1, verse 35, says this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, pause there and let's set some context for a moment. Verse 35 begins with this phrase, the next day. So when you're reading the Bible and you see something that says the next day, you should always ask the question, well, what happened the day before? So remember the last couple of weeks. And the day before this one, which gets described in verses 29 through 34, John the Baptist sees the Spirit descend upon Jesus. Carrie Faye talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And it's revealing to him that this was the one they had been waiting on, that this was the Christ, this was the Messiah, this was the Son of God. And so he makes this bold proclamation, and he points to Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Last week, we talked about the power and the meaning of that one statement. But the text today says this, On the next day, so on the next day, after he has pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the next day he's standing with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples who have given up everything to essentially move into the wilderness and follow him. So he looks at them. Look at verse 36. He looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. In other words, guys, I don't know why you're still standing here. That's the one we're after. That's the one we are pointing to. That's the one we're seeking to follow. So watch this, verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, when you read that phrase, they followed Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean that they like followed him fully as his disciples, at least not yet, though that will happen in the story. It means that they started following Jesus, like quite literally walking behind him. He would take a step, they would take a step. He would take a step, they would take a step. And we know that because of what verse 38 says. Jesus turned, so he's like, man, I feel like someone's following me. He turns around, and he saw them following, and he says to them, and here are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Some translations say, what do you want? Other translations say, what are you after? What are you after? What are you seeking? What are you doing here? 
It's a good question. Now, it's difficult to read tone in written form. That's one of the reasons why I don't love email. It's very difficult to read someone's tone in written form, but I think the tone is clear in this passage. This isn't a question of someone who is annoyed that he's being followed. And this isn't a, a, just a courteous transactional question, the way like a retail store employee might ask if you need help finding something. It's deeper than that. It's relational. It's existential. It is an invitation. What Jesus is doing here, it is an invitation for these men to name their intentions and to declare a purpose and a direction for the decision they just made. To name their intention and purpose. What do you seek? What are your motivations in following me? Commentator John Clifford says this about their underlying motivations in following John the Baptist and then eventually Jesus. He says this, We imagine they had them, desires and motivations, as they had already left behind some semblance of ordinary life and had been following the radical John the Baptist. They, they must have had some motivation, some yearning for a different life. They joined others who were searching for a Messiah. He continues, Maybe they were looking for an adventure, for new experiences, to see the world beyond the sleepy little village where they had spent all their lives. Maybe they were looking to make a difference, to be a part of a movement to resist the Roman occupation and the corrupt leadership of Judea. Maybe they were looking for meaning and purpose in their otherwise aimless lives. Perhaps they were looking to find themselves, so they joined the cult of John the Baptist with visions of utopia dancing in their heads. So they had intentions, they had desires, they had motivations, but what's interesting here is the text never tells us what they were actually looking for, at least not here in chapter 1, but it does tell us how they responded to this question. And they responded to his question in a very Socratic way, with another question. They asked him a question. Look at this, middle of verse 38. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now at first glance, this is the way I read it. It seems like these dudes just like panic in the moment and ask a really dumb question. Like he turns around and they're like, oh no. And they're like, where are you staying? Like that's just like what comes out of their mouth. You guys remember that SNL skit with uh, Chris Farley, the Chris Farley show? One of his best, anyone raise your hand. I need to see hands on this so I know who I'm pastoring. Okay. So here's a screenshot of uh, one of the best moments in one of those skits. He would interview all these really famous celebrities, Jeff Daniels, Martin Scorsese, Paul McCartney. And then he would just get really nervous in the moment and he would freeze up. He would, he would panic. One of my favorites was from this interview with Paul McCartney, and he looks at him and he goes, you remember, remember when you were at the Beatles? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, that, that was awesome. That was awesome. When I first read this passage this week, I kind of read it like they were Chris Farley on the Chris Farley show. Like these dudes get a moment with Jesus. They get a moment with this very important person, and he gives them their, his attention. And they just panic, and they go, uh, where are you staying? But as I studied the text more, it actually seems like a genuine question because they call him rabbi, which was a sign of respect. It acknowledged that they thought he had something to teach them. So in other words, here's what I think they were saying. Rabbi, teacher, we want to learn from you. We want to follow you. Will you tell us where you are staying so that we can come sit at your feet and learn? And then look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, the 10th hour is just a Jewish way of saying 4 p.m. So they stayed with him all day until the late 
afternoon. Most scholars believe that this detail about the specific time of day clues us into the fact that one of the disciples that was with him in that moment was, in fact, John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel account. Now, we know from verse 40, which we will get to next week, that one of these men was Andrew, but the other man remains unnamed. So most scholars believe it was Andrew and John. Either way, whether it was John and Andrew or Andrew and someone else, they follow Jesus back to where he was staying, and they sit at his feet, and they listen to him teach all day long. And this would just be the first of many times that they would sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him teach. Now, the question that I want to ask, that we ask every week, is so what? Who cares? What does this matter? How do we apply this text to our life? Well, as I studied this text all week, two questions kept popping up in my mind. Two questions. One of them is explicitly asked by Jesus in the passage. One of them is explicit, but the other question is implied in the text, both of which are equally important. So two questions that I want to lay before us this morning. Two questions. Here's the first one if you take notes. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? In verse 38, Jesus turns around and he asks these guys this question. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? What are you after? And I believe the same question could be asked by Jesus to us this morning. Jesus could look at you and he could look at me and he says, look, I noticed that you're following me. I see that you're making an effort here, but what are you actually seeking? Now, for the sake of clarity, let me um, divide or bifurcate these two, this question into two parts. Because most of us in the room, we started following Jesus at some point in the past, right? There was a moment in your life when you became a follower of Jesus. All of us can kind of point back to a moment or a season when that happened. But all of us are also actively, ongoing, following Jesus. The fact that you're here right now tells me that you are attempting to follow Jesus in your life. So there's this past moment, but there's also this current reality. So let me speak to both of those for just a moment. When you became a follower of Jesus, when you first repented of your sins and you placed your faith in Christ, when you first walked down the aisle or prayed the prayer with your parents or raised your hand at summer camp or whatever that moment looked like for you, what were you seeking in that moment? Like, think about it. Be really honest with yourself. What were you seeking when you came to Christ for the first time? For some of you, when you made the decision to follow Jesus for the first time, you were seeking a get-out-of-hell-free card, what we call fire insurance, essentially. Like, you, you had heard the scary stories. Maybe you went to one of those Judgment Day plays at your church. You had heard some pastor preach on hell. Maybe you had a pastor visit you, or maybe your parents sat you down, and they said, listen, there's two options at the end of this thing. When you die, hell or heaven, which one do you want to go to? And you went, now, I'm not stupid. I'll take heaven any day. And so that's how you kind of came into to faith. For some of you, when you became a Christian, you did so because you were trying to please someone in your life. Like perhaps you liked some girl and her dad said you couldn't date her or marry her unless you were a Christian. Or maybe your mom just kept bugging you over and over and you're, you're thinking, man, I'll get her off my back. I'll just pray the silly prayer and move on. And now I'm a Christian. For others of you, when you made the decision to follow Jesus for the first time, you were seeking forgiveness of your sin. Like you were living a, a life of blatant sin and you were feeling sorrow and guilt and remorse over what you were doing. And you heard that this Jesus could forgive sins, that he was gracious and that he loved us. And so you just came to Jesus because you thought, man, if he can forgive my sin, then I want some of that. That was my story. That was my story. For others of you, you made the decision to follow Jesus because you were searching for belonging. 
Maybe you were new to a place. You moved to a new city. You moved to a new school, and you wanted community. And this community of Jesus followers seemed like a good community. Maybe you grew up and you didn't have a good family environment and you thought, if this thing is supposed to be a family, then I want some of that. I want to get in on that. And yet for others of you, you became a follower of Jesus because you thought Jesus could fix all your problems. Your marriage was failing. Your kids were rebelling. You were caught in some addiction. And you thought, man, if I become a Christian, then Jesus can fix all of my problems. Now, Are any of those things, in and of themselves, bad reasons to become a follower of Jesus? No. No. But here's what I would say to you. Becoming a follower of Jesus is so much more than those things. It is those things in part. It does mean forgiveness. It does mean belonging. It does mean eternity in heaven. But it doesn't only mean those things. You know how Jesus describes our life following him. In John chapter 10, he says that he has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Not just that we would have life eternally with him, but we would have life right here, right now, to the full, abundantly. C.S. Lewis has this great line, and he's talking about desires, not necessarily talking about what we are talking about, but I think it applies. He says this, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Now again, he's talking about worldly desires, but this describes so many of us in regards to our salvation, to our discipleship. We have settled for just forgiveness of sins. We have settled for just eternity in heaven when what Jesus is promising us, what he has offered us is so much more. We are like kids who go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. I think far too many of us have settled for a salvation that is about one tiny facet of this thing we call Christianity. But what Jesus has actually invited us into is an abundant life. A life where he rules and reigns over every facet of our life, where we are fully informed by him, we are fully absorbed in him, and we have been set apart for his kingdom purpose. May this be true of us. But as I mentioned, there is another aspect to this question because we didn't just decide to follow Jesus one time in the past. We also are in an ongoing decision to follow Jesus. Each day we wake up and we decide that we are going to continue to follow Jesus. And so today and in the days ahead, let me ask this, what are you seeking? If if you were to go to your community this week and they were to look at your calendar, at your bank statements, and at your internet search history, what would they say you were seeking? What consumes your mind? What consumes your time and your thought? For some of you, you're seeking your career. For some of you, you're seeking family. Maybe for you, it's comfort or wealth or influence or notoriety. But all of us are seeking something. All of us have that thing, and all of us, and I am not excluded from this, all of us are prone to run to the wrong place to find fulfillment. We run to the world to find fulfillment instead of running to Jesus where true fulfillment is found. Again, commentator John Clifford says this about the ongoing seeking that we are all prone to. He says, while Scripture does not reveal what they, the two disciples, were looking for, is it possible that they were looking for some of the same things 21st century churchgoers seek? 
People still long for identity, for purpose, for meaning, for healing. They are looking for redemption, for love, for life. And the world, listen, is ready and willing to offer solutions to this search. Here's the thing. The world is ready and willing to offer, and I'll put it in quotes, solutions for your seeking. But the world's solutions will always fall short, and they will always leave you longing for more. The great theologian Bono sings this song that has been uh, running through my mind. And I say that like half-joking. Some of his lyrics are powerful. It says this, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, oh my shame, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Jesus Christ broke our bonds and he loosed the chains of sin and we still haven't found what we're looking for because we look in all the wrong places. So may we actually believe the words of Jesus and follow his advice in Matthew 6, that we would seek him and his kingdom first and foremost. That we would seek him and his kingdom. What are you seeking? Second question. This is the one that's implied in the text. Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you abiding in Jesus? I want to show you this in verse 39 again, because something happened in the text that I did not point out when we walked through it the first time. We'll put this back on the screen. Verse 39 says this. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, there's a really interesting word in this passage, and it's this word. Next slide stayed. He stayed with him. In the Greek, it's this word, the word meno, meno. And it does mean to stay. And it often gets translated as stayed, but it also means to abide, to abide. Let me show you one of my favorite examples of where this word gets used a lot. It's in John chapter 15, which we'll get to, you know, sometime. John chapter 15, verse 4. I just pulled a few verses. It says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says, abide with me, stay with me, learn from me, abide in my love. Abiding in Christ, abiding with Christ, abiding in his love, that our joy may be full, it says. J.C. Ryle says this of abiding. He says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and our best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. John Piper says this, hour by hour abiding in Jesus means hour by hour trusting him to meet all your needs and be all your treasure. This is what the monk Brother Lawrence was getting at when he talks about practicing the presence of God being ever aware of God's presence in your life, abiding in him. Let's just be brutally honest. This sounds great, doesn't it? Like it, it sounds great, but it is incredibly difficult, if not nearly impossible in the digital society that we find ourselves in. 
because we are surrounded by distractions and we have thousands of things and people vying for our attention. Every nook and cranny of our life is filled with messages about what we should do, what we should buy, how we should think, who we should be like. And in the thick of this constant audio fog, it can be difficult to hear the voice of God and to even identify your own voice. So here's the reality. If you don't actively and intentionally plan to abide in Christ and with Christ, it will not happen. It just won't. Here's what will happen. You'll sleep in tomorrow. You'll rush to get to work or get your kids off to school. You'll get bombarded by email. Any free time you have throughout the day, you will distract yourself with social media or a podcast. Then you will rush back home. You'll eat dinner. You'll binge Netflix. And then you'll wake up tomorrow and do it again until you come here next Sunday and you wonder why you don't feel close to Jesus. Abiding in Jesus, walking with Jesus, experiencing his presence takes effort and it takes intentionality. William Paulsell says it this way. It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. It doesn't happen on its own. There will be a need for some intentional commitment, some reorganization of our lives, but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily life. This will not happen in an unplanned, haphazard way. So let me give you a homework assignment this week. Let me give you a way to practice the presence of Jesus, a way to abide in him. It's a practice that many people have been doing for thousands of years, and we actually see Jesus do it a lot in his lifetime. It's this spiritual practice of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude is a much needed but often forgotten component of our discipleship to Jesus. It's something we see Jesus practice a number of times, in particular in the Gospel of Luke. Over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus retreats to the Aramos, to the wilderness, to be present with his Father in quiet, in silence and solitude. We see it in Luke 4, Luke 5, 6, 9, 11, 22. Jesus gets away to be with his Father. Henry Nouwen says that silence and solitude is the furnace of spiritual transformation. Dallas Willard calls silence and solitude the greatest spiritual disciplines of our generation. So here's the homework assignment. This week, spend five to ten minutes, preferably in the morning, in the morning, to just sit, stay, to shut your mouth, to abide, to be present with Jesus, and to allow that moment to set the trajectory and to set the tone for the rest of your day as you continue to abide in Jesus and be aware of his presence. Five to ten minutes a day. And brothers and sisters, believe me, in the silence and solitude, God speaks truth to you. When we wade beyond the chaos of the world and the voices in our head, we enter into a place where God speaks most clearly. And it is there, in his presence, that we tune into the only voice that matters in this world. In her seminal work on silence and solitude, Ruth Haley Barton describes that moment when we finally stop and abide with Jesus. She says this, all of a sudden it becomes very quiet. At first, the quiet may feel just like another place of emptiness. We may even feel a sense of dread or fear that we are going to be judged or punished for parts of ourselves we have now brought into the light of day. But if we stay in this moment, we begin to notice that this silence is qualitatively different from the emptiness we experienced before. The silence that comes after the chaos is pregnant with the presence of God. 
pregnant with the presence of God. But I would argue that this moment that Barton speaks of, it goes beyond the reality that God is simply present. And it extends to the reality that in that moment, he is not only present, but he is speaking to us. In those moments, God is speaking to us and he is speaking truth over us. One of my professors from seminary, a guy named Zach Eswine, says it this way. says, he, God, has waited patiently with a quiet heart while we've brewed our lives into storm and froth constantly interrupting him. Now that we are finally silent, he has healing to speak and mending to perform. But what is God speaking in that moment? What is this healing, this mending that Eswine speaks of? I believe that the, the loudest words that God speaks to us in these moments of silence, the words that bring the most healing to us are simply reminders of who he is. Reminders that he has not changed or moved, that he has not forgotten us, and reminders of who we are in Christ. Again, Barton describes it beautifully. Beyond formulaic approaches designed to harness God for our purposes, we learn to relinquish control and simply be present with the one whose presence is the bedrock of our being. Given time, we experience that loving presence as our ultimate reality. We learn in our very cells of our being that this reality never changes. It is only that our awareness of it is sometimes dulled by the noise and clutter of life. When we are settled in God's love at the core of our being, the waters of the soul become much clearer. Friends, may we fight this. It takes effort and intentionality in our day. May we abide in him. May we learn from him. May we be aware of God's presence every moment of every day. What are you seeking? And are you abiding with Jesus. What are you seeking and are you abiding with and in Christ? As we close, I want to tell you how this sermon played out in my life this week. From time to time, I think it's really important for me to share how the text is convicting me and working in my life because the truth is, if the sermon first has not preached to me, then I have no business standing before you and preaching it to you. Now, fair warning, I know that what I'm about to share is going to be judged by some of you. Some of you are going to judge me harshly for what I'm about to say. I know that in advance, okay? I just got to say it out loud because it takes the sting away later. <clears throat> this past week, I flew to Dallas, Texas to attend a small gathering of pastors from around the country. And these pastors were flying in. Uh, most of us were from big metropolitan cities, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New York, Dallas, Miami, Denver, places like that. And we, we fly in, and I had been invited several months ago by this guy named Rick to go. And, and I had only met Rick twice on the phone. We had, we had two conversations on the phone. I never met him in person. I, I didn't really know Rick that well. But he invited me to come to this, to this pastor's gathering. And so at first I'm like, ah, I'm not going to go. I don't really know anyone. I don't know what this is about. But I had a friend who had gone a couple of years ago, and I called him. And I said, hey, should I go to this thing? And he said, and I quote, and people tell me this a lot, it feels like, Justin, don't be an idiot. <laughs> I go, okay, yeah, that's all I needed to hear. He said, don't be an idiot, you have to go. So I went to Texas. Now, I had very little knowledge of what to expect or what I was even walking into, but I realized very quickly on Monday night and then on Tuesday and Wednesday that I was a fish out of water. I legitimately, this is no, you can ask our staff, I legitimately wondered if they invited the wrong Justin Peterson. Like maybe there was a, a more famous more gifted Justin Peterson that they actually meant to invite. Or maybe there's another table community church 
that's like a mega church somewhere that I don't know about, and they meant to invite that pastor, but they just Googled the wrong church, and they accidentally invited me. And here's why I felt that way. I walked into this room, 50 or so pastors, all roughly my age, mid to late 30s, and I sit down at a table, and I kid you not, the guy to my left, I immediately recognized, and I recognized him because I have been reading his work and listening to him preach for years. He's one of the sharpest theological minds I know, and he created a theological institute at a church in Texas that I have respected for years. So I know him. He has no idea who I am. In front of me is a guy who is my age, and he just took over a church in Texas that has six campuses and are expanding, and they have over 15,000 people in their church. Another guy sitting in the room was talking budget, and he just casually mentioned that they had tens of millions of dollars sitting in their cash reserve. Not their like normal savings account or operating account. This is just like extra money that they have, tens of millions of dollars. Another guy sitting there had planted a church just before COVID, which historically is like the worst time ever to plant a church. He planted a church just before COVID, and it just blew up over the next two years, so much so that a church in his area loved what God was doing in his church, and they literally just handed over the keys to their building. They said, we don't need it. Take it. He got that building appraised, and it appraised for $80 million. Exactly. (laughs) There's another guy in the room who has been named by, uh, he and his church have been named by Outreach Magazine as one of the fastest growing churches in America for multiple years in a row. Collectively, these guys have probably, ri- have probably written dozens of books. They have thousands of followers on social media, and their sermons have been downloaded tens of thousands of times. And then there was me. <laughs> Good old Pastor Justin from Table Community Church. No theological institutes created, no multi-campus strategy, no big building, no massive cash reserve, zero followers on social media, no books written, No thousands of downloads of my sermons. On a good week, you guys, we get like a a hundred downloads of the sermons here. And I think most of those are just my mom listening to them on different (laughs) devices down in Florida, if I'm honest. And here's what made it worse. This is what made the whole week even worse. It would have been so much easier if these guys were jerks. If I was around them and I'm like, oh, they're horrible. But they were so kind and they love Jesus. And they're trying to faithfully shepherd what's been entrusted to them. And they were asking good questions. At one point, Beth, our administrative assistant, sent me a text, and she said, how's it going in Texas? (laughs) So I explained the situation, and then I said to her, meanwhile, I'm over here like this, and I sent her this gif. (laughs) I'm like, I am not in the right place. Now, here's the thing. Normally, normally, I do not get caught up in the desire for a big church. I don't. I have a desire to see a lot of people come to know and follow Jesus. I have a, lot of, a desire to see a lot of people baptized, but I do not have a desire for a big platform or a big following. Rarely do I struggle with this. But for some reason, for some reason, as I sat in that room for two days and I listened to these stories and I heard about how big their budgets were and I heard about churches just giving them buildings for a moment, I got caught up in it. For a moment, it was intoxicating. And I thought to myself by the end of Thursday, by the end of Wednesday, someday, Justin, someday, if you play your cards right, 
See, I told you you would judge me a little bit. (laughs) On Thursday, I was flying back, and I was writing this very sermon. And as tends to happen when I fly, I was just staring out the window, and I was praying and thinking and daydreaming. And I felt like God very clearly said to me in that moment, Justin, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Are you seeking those things? Is that what you really want in life? And the answer, of course, is no. No, like I want Jesus and I want to live out the calling that God has placed on my life, not the calling that he's placed on someone else's life. So on Friday, I woke up early and I went into the office and I began my day by practicing the very thing that I have asked you to practice this week. I began my day by practicing silence and solitude. So as my coffee was brewing, I sat at my desk and I lit my little leather and tobacco candle on my desk and I set the timer on my phone for 10 minutes, and then I just sat there silently and tried to listen to the Lord. And as I sat there, I just want to be clear, like nothing magical or weird happened, like the Shekinah glory of God didn't like fall over my desk area in the office, nothing like that. But I did feel like God was speaking. And in that moment, I was reminded of this little anecdote that I heard from the monk Thomas Merton one time. Thomas Merton once pointed out that if we aren't careful We will spend our entire life climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top of the ladder and realize that the ladder has been resting against the wrong wall the entire time. And I just felt like the Lord was saying, Justin, make sure your ladder is leaning against the right wall. Make sure you are pursuing me, that you are abiding in me, that you are living out your calling. So that's how the text played out in my life this week. I don't know how it might affect you. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life right now, but I pray that as we prepare our hearts and we come to the tables of communion like we do every single week, that the Holy Spirit in this moment would stir your heart and would stir your affections for Jesus, that you would be reminded of the love of your heavenly Father, that you would be reminded of your union to his son Jesus, and that you would leave this place abiding in him and stepping into the full, abundant life that he has invited you into. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the way you speak to us through it. God, I'll just never get over the way you speak through this really old book. A book that you say is alive and active, And God, this week, I felt it. God, I pray right now as we sit here, as we begin to sing and take communion, that your spirit would be at work, convicting where needed, comforting where necessary. God, that we would be brutally honest about our desires and tensions in following you. And God, that you would draw us to yourself and help us abide in you this week and in the weeks ahead. God, as we come to the tables, I pray that you would remind us afresh and anew of your grace, of how much you love us, of the great lengths to which you went to redeem us, to rescue us, to adopt us into your family. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.